The sermon today is taken from John 19, verses 31 to 42. This is the word of God. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was a high day, the, G the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bowed it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Indita. Friends, let's pray one more time before we enter into our sermon. Father, in this passage, you lay out truth claims about who you are and what salvation is and what the redemptive story you have planned from long ago and how it's accomplished. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. No matter how well this passage is preached, or how attentive and detailed our notes may be, the truths found here cannot affect our hearts in a life-changing way unless you, by your mercy and grace, send your spirit into our hearts, turning it from stone to flesh. I beg of you today, you do this, for your glory and for the souls in this room. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to continue through the series uh, of the book of John, and last week we saw the crucifixion of Christ. A lot of us are familiar, even though we don't know the Bible that well, perhaps of that story where Christ is crucified, and now we're taking a look at John's account of the events after the crucifixion. Now before I get into it, it's important to remind ourselves when all of this is taking place, okay? John himself made sure to remind the reader Again, in the beginning of the first verse of the passage, verse 31, if you take a look at it, John reminds us that all this happened during the day of preparation. Now, what day is the day of preparation? Now, this is important for the rest of the passage, so, so stick with me. In the Judaic tradition, the day of preparation was the day before the Passover celebration. Okay, so two dates to keep in mind. The day of preparation and the Passover celebration. The Passover celebration is a yearly celebration that the Jews held to remind them of the freedom that they had from the Egyptians, right? If you read the book of Exodus, you see God freeing his people, the Israelites, from the slavery of Egypt, specifically by cursing Egypt with a series of plagues. 
And if you read the story, you'll see that before inflicting Egypt with the last plague or the last curse, God told each Israelite household in Egypt to do what? Do you remember? To kill a lamb. And God told the Israelites to mark the door frames of their houses with the blood of that lamb. And every household marked by the blood of the lamb will not receive the curse that fell upon Egypt. The curse which then caused Egypt to free Israel. Now ever since that, every year God told his people to celebrate the Passover by sacrificing a lamb. This sacrifice would then point backwards and remind God's people of the way that God delivered them out of the slavery of Egypt. So, the Passover is the day where the Jews would feast and celebrate their freedom from the slavery of Egypt, killing a lamb to remember the way that God freed them. The day of preparation is the day before the Passover feast. All right? So Jesus here was crucified and died during the day of preparation, right before the Passover celebration, which was a Saturday. This, and the preparation was a Friday. Okay, so keep that context in mind. Because what John will reveal about Jesus today in our passage is very much connected to that context. And if we truly receive the truth that John is revealing here about who Jesus is, I think, I hope, I pray that we will find ourselves following in the footsteps of Joseph and Nicodemus in our passage today, who saw this truth and it shattered their worldview. It conquered their egos, and it changed their whole lives. Three things I want to point out from the passage. Point one, the eternal God who took on flesh. Point two, egotistic men overtaken by worship. Point three, the slain lamb who took their hearts. The eternal God who took on flesh, egotistic men overtaken by worship, the slain lamb who took their hearts. Point one. The eternal God who took on flesh. Okay, let's get back to our passage. We see in verse 31 that the Jews were pretty anxious about getting the bodies that was crucified on the cross down before the Passover day began, right? During the day of preparation, that's when they were crucified. The Jews wanted to take them down before the Passover day began. Why? Because the Jews thought, the Pharisees thought, the bodies of criminals hung on the cross were cursed. And if they weren't put down of the cross before the Passover day started, their presence there would defile the Passover day. So you've got to take them down. Okay, this explains why the Jews in verse 31 asked Pilate to break the legs of Jesus and the two other criminals who were crucified with Jesus. Why? To speed up their death. This practice is called crurifragium, if I pronounce that right. You can correct me later if you know the exact pronunciation. Crurifragium. Okay, it's a common way to speed up the deaths of criminals on a cross. Because when you break their legs, one, not only will it uh, speed up the bleeding process, but also it will uh, disallow them to push up with their legs, something they really need to do in order to catch their breath. Because when you're crucified, uh, you, you die by suffocation. Your, your chest can't hold the pressure of your body, so you need to push up. But when you break their legs, they can't push up. And, and that's why their deaths would be sped up by this act. So... The soldiers broke the legs of the two other criminals that was crucified with Jesus, you see there in verse 31, in order to speed up their deaths because apparently they're still alive. But when they got to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. And John includes this weird detail in verse 34. A soldier 
most likely wanting to confirm Jesus' death, stabbed Jesus on the side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. Now, I'm going to step out of my area of expertise and get a bit medical here, okay? Because I believe this is actually John's intention by including this detail. There are two agreed-upon medical explanations for this blood and water coming out of Jesus' body. One, the soldier stabbed near Jesus' heart at what's called the pericardial sac, doctors, correct me later, which is a section near the heart that contains liquids. That what the soldier pierced was that, and that's what explains the water coming out. But this explanation is less satisfactory because... When the pericardial sac leaks, it first will fill up the lungs and the chest cavity, and it wouldn't just, in our text, burst out like that. I love sounding smarter than I am by spitting out facts I just researched four days ago. (laughs) Second, more likely explanation. It's more agreed upon. The soldier stabbed the pleural lining containing hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic fluid. Okay, which is a fluid that collects in the pleural lining located under your rib cage around the lung. This liquid accumulates when someone experiences severe chest and upper back injuries, which Jesus did receive brutally during his flogging. This is the more likely explanation. But either way, whichever biological explanation you're swayed toward, here's the point. Why did I just get medical on you? because I believe this was John's intention. Why would John go into the details describing that blood and water came out of Jesus' body to show the reader and to convince them beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus Christ truly, truly, truly had a human body? In every single way, he was truly human. Here's another context that might be helpful. At that time, when John wrote his gospel, There's a group of people who believed in something that will later be known as docetism. Docetism came out of the Greek word dokesis. Dokesis means seem-like. Docetists would say, yes, Jesus was truly God, but his human body, it wasn't really a human body. It was more like a a phantom, like, like a projection. It just seemed like a human body. And you see John rebuking this heresy again more specifically later in his letter, 1 John chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 5. Read it yourself if you want. John would have none of it. He made sure to convince the reader, no, 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 Jesus truly had a human body. This is a very important doctrine, that he was truly man. And that the death, therefore, that Jesus experienced in verse 33, because he truly had a physical body, was true death. He wasn't just unconscious to then later get up. He wasn't just a hologram of a dead man cast down by some heavenly projector. This was a true human being who truly died. See, this is very important. It's a very important biblical claim. It's a foundational claim throughout the whole Gospel of John, the whole Bible, really. Let me just read a little bit uh, uh, back some of the verses in in John's Gospel and other passages in the Bible. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. John is saying, this is the the thesis of the book of John, the beginning, chapter 1. God the Son, eternal, glorious, equal in every way with God the Father, became what? In John chapter 1, verse 14. Became flesh. And the Word, who was God, who was with God, God the Son, God the Father, became flesh, true flesh, sark, the Greek, 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. God, John claims, entered into our story not as a hologram, not as a fake human being, but truly put on flesh and had medical properties and a biological makeup fully in every way as we do. He truly was God and truly was man. Jesus himself claims this throughout the New Testament. He accepted worship. Worship is only something God can receive. He forgave sin. When somebody else sins to somebody else, he says, I forgive you. How weird is that if he did not have that authority? He told the Pharisees that before Abraham existed, I am eternal. Paul and the rest of New Testament claims Jesus to be truly God and truly man as well. Let me just read one of the classic texts we have for this. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, truly in essence God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, this claim that Jesus is truly God and truly man would have upset the Pharisees and the Docetists a lot. Why? Because this view attacks the one fundamental basis of their worldview. Let me, let me just explain that. The Pharisees, you, if you remember, what do they believe? They believe Jesus was truly human, but not truly God. That's why they crucified him in the first place, right? He was a human being claiming to be God. Okay, that's, that's the Pharisees. True, Jesus is man, but not God. But the Docetists and the other end of the spectrum said Jesus was truly God. There's no doubt of that. Look at the way he lived his life. Look at the things he did. But they would never say that he was truly man. He only seemed to be like one. Those two things might seem like opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Truly man, not God. Truly God, not man. But let me show you how there's actually an underlying basis that holds up these two worldviews. And it's this. Neither of them could fathom the fact that a being as glorious and as majestic as God would actually take on human flesh. Neither of them would say that God would take on human flesh. That's why they say, yeah, I, you're a human being, but you're not God. Yeah, you're God, but you're not truly human being, right? You, you're just a man. You're not God. Don't, don't dare you say that God would take on something as weak and as frail and as dirty as human flesh. You're human, Jesus, not God. The docetists would say, you're God, yes, but you're not really flesh, no one would dare say that God would take on something as weak and frail and dirty as human flesh. So Jesus, you're, you're God, but you're not flesh. That's the underlying worldview that holds up these two seemingly opposite ends. Is that, do you see that? No way. To be born in a manger-like place, to be willing to participate in actually feeling hungry like a human being, and get tired and sleepy and thirsty, all the emotions we see Jesus have throughout the Gospel of John. Why did, why did he stop by the well? Because he was thirsty. What did he do in the boat when the, when the storm came? He was asleep. No way. Why would God be willing to experience physical pain and limitations? Why would God, an eternal, infinite God, be willing to feel the skin ripped off his black back from flogging? Why would internal 
a, a fleshless God be willing to be stripped naked and exposed in humiliation to thousands of people when his hands and feet are nailed on that cross? You're saying your God would do that, Christian? What a disgrace. How humiliating. But this is the foundational truth of Christianity. This is why John, the author, inserts himself into the narrative here in verse 35. Okay, he kind of stops the story and he enters himself, saying, he did. God put on flesh. Because he knows how audacious this claim is. He who saw it, verse 35 says, John referring to himself, he who saw it, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. I know how crazy this sounds, but he really did. He put on flesh. This was the plan all along. John continues in verse 36 to 37. Look at verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. This is a fulfillment of two Old Testament passages, Exodus 12 and Numbers 9. This was the plan all along. He was going to take on flesh, die on a cross, and escape the cruy fragrim. He wasn't, his bones weren't going to be broken. And then verse 37, they, look, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This, all this, the cross happened, Jesus piercing, all that happened as a fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. He was going to take on human flesh, then to be pierced. This was the plan all along that God would one day become man, take on actual flesh, and undergo all of this. You know what that means for us today? It puts us on a crossroads. Some of us here might have come to church this morning and you've been on the fence for so long and you couldn't make up your mind about how to feel about Jesus. So you've resorted to the option of liking him as a good moral example. He's just a good person. But you know what this claim means? That Jesus is truly God and truly man? It means you can't just like Jesus. You can't just say that he's a good moral example for me to follow up there with Mother Teresa and Mahatma Gandhi and Ibu Kartini. Right? You can't say that. Why not? Because look at what he's claiming to be. He's claiming to be God. You got to deal with that claim. You can't just say I disagree with his claim that he's God, but I agree that he's a good moral example. You can't. Why? Because if he's not God, but claims to be God, that's called lying. And a liar can't be a good moral example. Or he's insane, which then would also disqualify him as a good moral role model to imitate. You can't just like him. You either don't believe his self-claim as God and absolutely detest him as a liar or a lunatic, or you believe his self-claim and you worship. That's why in the Bible, every, everybody that comes in contact with Jesus either wanted to kill him or was freaked out and ran away from him or worshipped him. No one just liked him. <laughs> you can't like somebody who claims to be God. John claimed it. Jesus claimed it. Paul claims it. The Old Testament hinted to it. The whole of New Testament claims it. What do you do with that? 
detest it, which is what the Pharisees did, and kill him? Or, like other people in our passage, you believe him, and if you do, you will find your whole lives redirected, as Joseph and Nicodemus experience in our second point. Egotistic men overtaken by worship. Let's read verses 38 to 40. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fears of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. A few things you've got to know about Joseph and Nicodemus. Okay, stick with me. One, Joseph and Nicodemus both had sinful pasts. They had very sinful pasts. Look at Joseph of Arimathea here, verse 38. It says he was, he was a disciple of Jesus, but in secret. He didn't want to admit it. You see, he was ashamed of Jesus. He was ashamed of being his disciple. Why? Because many powerful people at the time, the Pharisees and the Jews, hated Jesus. So Joseph chose his reputation over Jesus. And look at, look at Nicodemus, verse 39. He was described as a person who, quote-unquote, earlier came to Jesus at night. If you remember chapter 3 of the book of John, Nicodemus did come to Jesus at night to do what? To challenge him and mock him. And he brought a crew along with him just to be able to humiliate him publicly. Joseph and Nicodemus are two people with sinful pasts. One. But two, not only did they have sinful pasts, they were also very powerful men whose power was very much dependent upon the Pharisees. If you read Mark chapter 15, verse 43, stick with me, you see that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the highest Jewish council at the time, filled with the most prominent political and religious leaders. These people here were also usually very wealthy. And Nicodemus, described in John 3, was described as a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. He too was a part of the powerful Sanhedrin council. So Joseph and Nicodemus were powerful and had sinful pasts. And for them to go against the Pharisees, these powerful Sanhedrin members, and follow Jesus fully and stop being on the fence and go all in, the consequences is that they lose everything. They lose their position at the Sanhedrin, power, money, success, social standing, admiration, cultural approval, worldly honor, future financial security, all the friends they had in high places, they'd lose all of it. If they went all in, the world will reject them. And the world will no longer view them as big, but small. No longer as strong, but weak. No longer as relevant, but outcasts. And some of us know how tiring it is to live like Joseph here, don't we? Half in, half out. Kind of Christian, kind of not. One person Sunday morning, another person Friday night. And a lot of us may be like that because of the same reason that Joseph had. We realize that if we go all in, we got a lot to lose. And you know what's more frustrating? You hear sermons like this, and at the end, you get kind of motivated, and you think, you know, you know this time I'm committed. This time I can't be half in, half out. I need, to, I need to believe in God more. I need to be more disciplined for God. I need to be, stop being so godless and more godly 
I need to stop being so religionless and more religious. But that won't work. You've tried it, and it hasn't worked, has it? How do I know it won't work? Because Joseph and Nicodemus, their problem before this isn't that they were godless. The problem that Joseph and Nicodemus has isn't that they were not religious. They're Pharisees, remember? Did the Pharisees not believe in a god? Did the Pharisees not have a religion? Did the Pharisees not have zeal for God? Joseph and Nicodemus were not godless people, in a sense. They weren't religionless people. They had zeal for God. Their problem wasn't that they weren't worshiping uh, enough. The problem is they were not worshiping the true God. John, in our passage today, doesn't call us to just be more godly. He's calling us to worship the only true living God. And allow me to go on a tangent here. I'll circle back around, I promise. John is calling us to repent from idol worship to worshiping the true God. Look, religion, especially in a place like Indonesia, often becomes something other than what it claims to be. Why? Because it's scary to admit what religion actually claims to be. Let me give you an example. We've made religion oftentimes primarily into becoming life help methods, right? I want to get more religious so that I can be a better person. How many times have we heard that? All religions are good. Just follow the good moral points of each religion and, and you're fine. I've had someone come up to me today, I mean, not, not today, but in the past and say, you don't, you don't know them. This is uh, in the U.S. So um, he said, I don't need to go to church because I don't feel like I have a need to be a moral person. I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty good guy without religion. And see, see, people think that religion is primarily about polishing our ethics and about becoming more virtuous. It's not. That's not what religion ultimately claims to be. Another thing we often make religion out to be is a part of our family or ethnic identity, right? In order to be a good Chinese Indonesian, you must speak Mandarin, you must major in economics or engineering and be a Buddhist. As if religion was reduced into being a part of our ethnic identity. In order to be a good Padangese, which by the way I am, you must like rendang. You must be an expert of eating with your hands and you must be a Muslim. As if religion is just a subpart of what it means to be a particular ethnicity. In order to be American, you must memorize the national anthem. You must be able to quote every major Will Ferrell movie. And if you're to choose religion, it's probably going to be Christian. As if religion is just a subcategory of what it means to be Westerner or American. Is that what religion claims to be? Does religion actually claim to be uh, uh, an ethical guideline book for you? Or does religion claim to be an instruction manual of how to respect your ethnicity more? No. It's infinitely greater than that. You know what religion ultimately claims to be? It claims to reveal to you who God is. It's a truth claim about who God is. Each religion has a different view of God. The Quran has a particular view of God. The Bible has a particular view of God. Buddhism, Hinduism. The Pharisees had a view of God. The Docetists had a view of God. They're all different, but they each claim to know who God is and reveal to you who he is. And that's scary to admit that and talk about religion in that way because people get into fights and they get really angry 
So what we do is we tone it down. We tone it down to become this moral instruction or ethnic norms. And no longer what it originally claims to be, which is a truth claim about who God is. Here's what happened to Joseph and Nicodemus. They didn't just move from atheism into a religion. They had a religion before this. They didn't just become more committed religious people. They repented from a religion that says God cannot and did not become a human being in the person of Jesus, which is what Judaism, the Pharisees, claim. That religion claims God cannot and did not become a human being in the person of Jesus. They repented from that into believing in the only true living God who did become man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's who the Bible claims to be. That's who the Bible claims God to be. An eternal sovereign being who took on flesh, true flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the truth claim offered to you in the Bible. That's who God is. This is what changed them. This is what gave Joseph, someone who prioritized himself over Jesus and loved the world and his ego more than Jesus, this is what gave Joseph the nerve to go to Pilate and ask him for Jesus' body, to give Jesus a proper burial. This is what drove Nicodemus, another lover of self who hated Jesus and a lover of the world and power and his own ego, to join Joseph not only in burying Jesus, but to honor the body of Christ, verses 39 to 40 says, with 75 pounds of very expensive herbs, to honor and worship him, the body of Jesus Christ, so that it would maintain a nice odor and not smell of decay as real human bodies do after death. Nicodemus gladly gave up his assets and money. 75 pounds of these expensive herbs, by the way, is valued equal to a few years of wages. He gave it up for Christ. Joseph finally had the nerve to risk his ego and reputation. He stopped living half in, half out. Why? Why were they no longer on the fence? Not because they mustered up enough self-will to become more religious. They're, they were religious. But because they repented from an erroneous view of God and came to understand who God truly is in the person of Christ. Truly God. Truly man. But the question still stands. Right? Why would God do this? If what the Bible claims about God is true, why would he do this? Why would he take on flesh? And how does this understanding of God give Joseph and Nicodemus the courage to let go of their egos and risk everything? Last point. The slain lamb who took their hearts. Okay. For some reason, you read the passage at the end of the verse, uh, the passage, verse 42. John reminds us again that all this happened in the day of preparation, a day before the Passover, where a lamb is to be killed. And the, comp, uh, to com, uh, uh, and the day of Passover where the lamb is to be killed, remember the, the killing of the lamb is to commemorate and remind them of the freedom that God gave them out of the Egyptian slavery in Exodus. Now this is important. Why does John keep going back to the Passover? As he's explaining why God became flesh in the person of Jesus. How was that connected? What does God taking on human flesh in the person of Christ have anything to do with the sacrificial animal in the Old Testament? Animal sacrifices, by the way, that throughout the Old Testament was instituted by God, not only for Passover celebrations, but also to signify the payment of sins. Well, here's a connection. Stick with me one last time. 
Let's go back to verse 36. Remember we said earlier, verse 36 was a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Not one of his bones will be broken. And how that fact was pointing to Jesus and how he was going to escape the Kurifragium and, and, and fulfilling Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, and Numbers chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, that none of the bones will be broken and that's, that's pointing to Christ. Okay, emphasizing that God one day will take on flesh in the person of Jesus and that was the plan all along. But do you know what Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 was actually originally all about? I'll put it on the screen. Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 was all about God's instruction to the Old Testament uh, 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 to Israelites of how to handle the Passover lamb. When a lamb is being prepared for the Passover feast throughout the Old Testament, one of the rules, God said, is that the bones of this Passover lamb cannot be broken. You can't break it. Exodus 12, 46. Let me just read it. It shall be eaten in one house. Exodus is in the Old Testament, right? You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. You can't break the bones of this Passover lamb. Numbers 9, 11 to 12. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. When Jesus died, none of his bones were broken. Why was that important? Why did John emphasize the fact that Jesus escaped the crurifragium? To tell us, look, there was a reason that God took on flesh and truly became one of us. He did that so that he can become our Passover sacrificial lamb. This was the plan all along. The plan was never for us to free ourselves from our sins into his kingdom. The plan all along was displayed in summary by the Passover lamb in Egypt. What saved God's people from slavery? It wasn't their own ability to break free out of Egypt, but the blood of a lamb. That's what saved them. This is meant to point to Christ, how terribly mistaken the Pharisees were. Throughout all these years, they thought the lambs they'd been sacrificing during Passover were meant to point back to the Passover lamb in Exodus. It wasn't. It was meant to point forward to Jesus. How ironic. They, they, they wanted um, Jesus' body to be taken down before the Passover because it was going to defile and make the Passover day impure. But ironically, his death was the very source of purification. Because he was the celebrated sacrificial Passover lamb. Look, if you want to kill your ego and stop choosing self-acclaim and stop choosing this world's affirmation over Jesus and stop, stop being half in, half out like Joseph and Nicodemus, you can't do that just by being more religious. Joseph and Nicodemus didn't repent from immorality and atheism to becoming moral and religious. They repented from a false view of God a false view of God that says, you must go all in and go up to me in order to be with me. That's a false view of God, thinking that you must earn your own salvation to get to God, which, by the way, is the basis of every other man-made religion. They had to repent from that, and they had to embrace the one and only true God who says, no, I'm coming down to you. That's the only way you'll kill your ego. You can't kill ego with self-will. 
if your view of God is that he's someone who is up there and you need to be able to muster up enough self-will to go all in in order to earn a relationship with him, that worldview will stroke your ego more than atheism ever will. (laughs) Because by that worldview, you're giving yourself praise for being able to get to God. What can possibly stroke your egos more than that? But if your worldview says this, God came to us. He intruded into our lives while we, like Joseph and Nicodemus, cared more for the world while we were pursuing and we were being drunk of our own egos and people's acclaims and and, and all the securities and comforts this world can offer. In the middle of that, he put on flesh. And he experienced every ounce of your pain and your suffering that we deserve from our sins and offenses. And he freed us from the enslavement of sin and our own egos. You know what that worldview will do? It'll kill your ego. No room for pride. There's a scene in a classic American movie called Alice in Wonderland. A lot of you have probably seen it. And there's a scene when Alice just got to Wonderland and she needed to pass through this tiny door. But she was too big. So what did she do? She drank a shrinking potion so that she became smaller. She drank it, she drank too much, and became too small. So to cure that, she ate a magical cookie to get bigger. She ate the magical cookie and became way too big because she ate too much. So then she drank the potion again and became too small again. So then she ate the cookie again and became too big again. And this kept going back and forth, back and forth. Just couldn't figure out the right size. Our egos are very much like that. Can't get quite to the right size. Always too big, always too small. The most minuscule praise from the world can make it feel gigantic. And the tiniest insult from the world can make it shrink to the most meager size. Joseph and Nicodemus live with gigantic egos because of their worldview. How can you not feel prideful and big when you think your relationship with God was a result of your obedience to his commands? But what the gospel does, it doesn't stroke your ego and make it big, nor does it make you small and weak. There is nothing small and weak about what Joseph and Nicodemus did here. The gospel doesn't make you big and prideful, nor does it make you small and weak. You know what it does? It makes you meek and humble. Meekness is not weakness. Joseph couldn't hold it in anymore. He couldn't take it. He couldn't continue living half in and half out, realizing all that God did for him on that cross. So he went to Pilate, meekly, humbly, risking everything, said, come what may. If Pilate knows that he might tell other people and my status at the Sanhedrin may be at risk and all I've built may be taken away, but as for me, I will worship the Lord. The only way you'll go all in for God is if you first realize he came all the way down for you. That's the only worldview that will crush your egos and not make you weak, but meek. You want to stop living in the fence? Deal with the claim Jesus had. I am God. I have put on flesh to become your Passover lamb so that your salvation 
and freedom is found in Him and Him alone. Deal with that. What do you do with that? Detest Him, sure. Worship Him, I hope. But like Him, you cannot. Leave here no longer in the fence. This is who John claims Him to be. This is who Jesus claims to be. And an infinite, eternal being who wrote himself into our story and truly became one of us so that he may die in our place and make you one of his. That old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me for the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. In the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine a wondrous beauty I see for the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to pardon and sanctify me. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for treating your word as if it's just another moral, instructional, ethical guideline. Forgive us for making your word into becoming just a subtext of our ethnicities. You are not so small. You are infinitely and eternally greater than anything here. And your word has claimed to reveal who you are, who the true and only living God is. Our problem is not that we don't have objects of worship. We all worship something. Our problem is that we have worshipped not the true living God. Help us see you as you claim to be and help us to receive that and trust that, for his testimony is true. You truly have put on flesh, become one of us, took our sins on that cross. Take us off from the fence, not by self-will. Kill our egos, not by to-do religiosities. But have us for yourself by showing us who you truly are and who it is that truly died on that cross for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.